0: We're going to turn to the sermon now, our time in God's Word. We're moving towards the end of our series in Nehemiah. Uh, And throughout the series, we have been looking at this book as a picture of what true zeal for God and what zeal for his work is, what it looks like. Uh, If you remember, in the beginning of the series, I defined zeal, brownie points. Can can you remember how I defined zeal? I'll give you mad brownie points. Zeal? No. All right, I'll just tell you. <laughs> zeal, it's, it's a passion that leads to action. That's what zeal is. Zeal is, is a passion that leads to action. And uh, my prayer, and I hope it's your prayer that as a church, we would be a people who are passionate for the Lord. You hear what I'm saying? That we would be a people who are, are passionate for the Lord, who have the Lord at the very center of everything that we're doing in such a way that it actually moves us out to action in the way that we treat other people, and the way that we move out into the world, that we would be passionate for the Lord in a way that we are moved to action, that we would really live our lives with him at the center of everything that we do. So if you have your copy of the scriptures in front of you, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. Uh, we're really looking at chapter 9, the very end of chapter 9, verse 38, all the way through chapter 12. Uh, but I'm going to focus us in on a section here in chapter 10, which I think captures the main thrust of what this section is about. So chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 28. If you don't have a Bible, there are a couple stacked up on the table there. You can grab one, take it with you if you'd like. Nehemiah chapter 10, starting in verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites... The gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God." And to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor, And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God got all that? Let me, let me uh, pray for us and then we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word is life. Think of the, uh, the, the disciples when they come uh, to Jesus saying, uh, Lord, where else can we go? You, O oh Lord, have the words of life. And so we come now to your word and pray that by your spirit, through your word, you would indeed speak to us. That you would tell us again of the mercy and kindness that you have poured out in Christ. Uh, That you would show us the blessing of living under your rule and under your law. That you would show us the blessing of, of following in your ways. Lord, not as a way to earn any kind of righteousness, but as a response to the grace that you've poured out to us in Christ that we might live our lives joyfully and cheerfully in obedience to you. So Lord, work now through your word, uh, nourish your people, build them up, encourage them, comfort them again in the gospel. Lord, cause us to walk in your ways. Accomplish this now through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we, we sing a song from time to time, and the chorus goes like this. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Uh, what, what comes to mind when you hear the word obey? What, what does that word Elicit in your heart, like what feelings come up when you hear that word "obey." I I don't think I'm misreading things when I say obedience is not a super popular idea in our culture, uh, not really a super popular idea in the church. Obedience grates against our sort of American individualism. Our uh, I'm not. Account- I don't want to be accountable to anyone. No one else can tell me what to do. I'm going to live life my way. And and in the church, uh, some have come to believe that obedience is an idea that stands opposite grace. Uh, others think obedience like stifles independence and even creativity. It's like constraining and confining. And for others, still the word obedience is the language of spiritual abuse. Uh, One woman, I was reading an article this week, one woman wrote this. She said, I hate the word obedience, and just that word alone tends to deter me from going to church. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a fan of organized religion and the teaching of obedience. What about you? What about you? Well, we need to be very clear that there are real ways in which authority and demands for obedience can be abusive. They can be manipulative and ungodly. The teaching of the Bible is that obedience to God is actually joy and life and freedom. Obedience to God is a good thing. Obedience to God is not drudgery. It's not burdensome. And and so God's people, what we're going to see here in this passage, is that God's people, in response to His grace, are marked by a zeal for obedience to the Lord. You, You see, to come into relationship with Jesus you can't just come into relationship with one part of him. Right? You, you can't come into relationship with Jesus and only come into relationship with him as Savior. Right? If you would come into relationship with Jesus, you will come into relationship with him as a Savior and as a Redeemer, but you must also come into relationship with him as a King who rules over us. And brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to tell you this morning is that that's good news, It's really good news to have Jesus as your king because no one rules as graciously or kindly or as wisely as King Jesus. And so to follow him, to obey him, to follow in his ways is joy and life and freedom what we see in this passage here this morning is a beautiful picture of God's people willingly devoting themselves to obey the Lord in response to his redemption. And it's this very thing that sets them apart before the world, that they submit themselves to God by obeying his word. And so it is with us. So as we look at this passage, I want us to observe three things. Three, two lessons and a thing. Three things. The first is true confession leads to true obedience. That's the first thing. True confession leads to true obedience. True obedience leads to true life. And then I want you to see the source of that obedience. Okay? Are you tracking with me? True confession leads to true obedience. True obedience leads to true life. Where does that obedience come from? What is the source of that obedience? All right, let's look at this first thing. True confession leads to true obedience. It's the first thing we learn. If you were here last Sunday, you'll remember that we saw in chapter nine, God's people gathered for six hours to sit under the law of God and to confess their sins. You remember that? They're gathered together and they're hearing God's word and they're being pierced by the reality that they have not obeyed. God's commands, they've forsaken uh, God's covenant that was revealed to Moses. They've been negligent in caring and making the, the necessary um, uh, appropriation, appropriating resources uh, for the practices of the temple rites and uh, the rituals and sacrifices. And so they're there sitting under the law and confessing their sins. And, and what we see is that the temple had been rebuilt, the wall had been rebuilt, and now the people were being rebuilt. and the first step in that is them hearing God's word and confessing their sins. They had been marrying with foreigners. They had been marrying their sons and daughters to, to, to foreign, uh, foreigners to, to uh, joining themselves to pagan nations. They had failed to keep the Sabbath. But as the law is read, they they are cut to the heart, and they call out to God for mercy. And then our passage picks up with this. If you have it there right in front of you, look at verse 38. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 38. It says, because of all this, that's the, that's the, the confession, that's sitting under the law. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then then a list of all the names. And And then verse 28 of chapter 10. It says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commands of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So I want you to see the progression. You see confession, that real confession. They've come before the Lord. They've sat under his law. They've confessed their sins. And that confession moves to a real resolve to obey the Lord, a real resolve to observe and do all that he has commanded, to walk in God's law. Here it is. Real confession always leads to real obedience to God, to real change. When you are confronted by the reality of your sin, the the, the evil of it, and when you are strengthened by God's grace to confess it, you don't want to go back to it. What you want is to live now in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. If you look in verses 32 and 38, you see the people saying, uh, we take, this is 32 and 30 of chapter 10, the people say, we take on ourselves the obligation. We, we obligate ourselves. Literally, we bind ourselves to obey God's commands. That's what they're saying. In response to hearing the law and confessing their sins, they say, we take upon ourselves the obligation to walk in God's ways. This is the heart of true repentance, you hear what I'm saying? You guys are people that know the gospel, Christ's finished work, his life and death and resurrection, how we respond in, in faith and repentance. I'm telling you, this is at the very heart of what repentance is. You, you know that repentance means to turn, right? And embedded in that idea is the concept both of turning away from sin and turning to God. In obedience. And you see it right there. Look again at verse 28. Do you see verse 28? Chapter uh, chapter 10, verse 28. It says, And all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God. There is a separation from and a turning to. They are separating themselves from the peoples of the land. That is, they are turning away from the the pagan nations, from the people that are not submitted to yahweh 's law, and they are joining themselves to the law of God, they are turning to the law of God. see where there is no change, where there is no resolve and devotion to walk in god 's ways, there is no repentance and and look this is this is not um, this is not rocket science this is not very complicated you 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 know this. From your own experience. Uh, If someone was hurting you with their words or with their actions, continually. Okay, you're in a situation where someone is continually hurting you with their words or with their actions, and you confront them and you tell them, This is hurting me. Please stop. This is this is you're doing damage to me. You're, You're hurting me. How do you know? that they have really come to terms with their behavior, with their words, with their actions towards you. How do you know if they've really actually, if their heart has changed towards you? Well, they're going to own it. They're going to see their part in it. They're going to see I am hurting you. They're going to confess it to you. They're going to apologize. But then what? They're going to stop. They're going to stop doing it. And if listen, if I'm that person... And I'm, painting you, I'm painting myself as the enemy in your own life. I come to you and I'm, I'm hurting you. And I say, wow, I'm really, really sorry. I, that must be so hurtful. And then I continue doing it, right? And I keep doing the same thing over and over again. What's your conclusion going to be? I haven't really come to grips with this. I haven't really come to grips with the way in which I've been hurting you. I haven't actually been changed. My posture towards you has not actually been affected. I'm the same person. I'm doing the same things. Now, that's, that's what Paul says to the Corinthians, writing to them. You know, Paul, Paul writes, and he, he writes to them after he'd, he'd called them out on their sin. And this is what he says. He says, uh, 2 Corinthians 7, he says, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, Paul's saying that there is a worldly grief. There's a worldly kind of repentance that turns out to be no repentance at all. It's it's a sorrow over sin. It's a sorrow over actions, behaviors that is just outward. It hasn't actually gone down. It hasn't actually cut to the heart. It's it's not a grief that has really taken in the reality of sin in such a way that, that has moved that person to change, but real godly grief, real godly sorrow leads to repentance, leads to a turn, leads to change, a turning away from sin and a pursuit of godly obedience. You see, here's how you know. If you want to know how you've been pierced by the sinfulness of your sin in your life, Are you laboring to put it to death? That's how you know. The way you know that that you have been pierced, that your heart has truly been affected by the sinfulness of sin, that the weight of your sin has actually come to bear on your heart, is when you are actively looking to put that sin to death in your own life and to walk in God's ways. Is that you? Do you find in your life a zeal to walk in obedience to the Lord? A zeal to put sin to death and to walk in His ways? This this is actually one of the hallmark characteristics of someone who has truly come to faith in Christ. You know, we we talk about membership a lot here in the church. And what membership is, is is the congregation looking upon someone and saying, we believe you have a credible profession of faith. And what that means, that credible profession thing, what that means is it's not only that you're saying true things, it's that those things that you're confessing are actually having an effect in your life. They're actually working themselves selves out in your life. That's not an expectation for perfection. It's not that you've, you, you've reached sinless perfection. But no, you're seeing the weight of your sin. There's a real hatred for it. And there is a desire and an active pursuit to put that sin to death and to walk in a way that would honor the Lord. Christians are people who are committed to living under Jesus' rule and to obeying his commands. You are devoted. You see in this text that they wanted to walk in God's laws. and You know that that language of walking is is to live, to live your lives after God's law. So do you find in yourself a zeal to obey God's commands? Sometimes you hear these questions and our tendency is to just kind of like be like, la, 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 I'm not hearing you. Don't do that. I'm asking you. God's word is asking you. Is there a real zeal in your life to obey God's commands, not out of a sense of duty or grudging obligation, but as a response to his grace to you? Is there a zeal for obedience to the Lord? Now, one of the ways that we commit to live our lives obediently, I just mentioned church membership. You'll notice, so we're covering the very end of chapter 9 through chapter 12, and really, I've read to you this, this section of chapter 10, and pretty much all the rest of it is lists. Did you, if, you have it, if you have your Bible, look, look at it. Look at the beginning of chapter 10. I was going to read that beginning part of chapter 10, but then I was like, that's a lot of names. And I'm going to definitely mess up a fair amount of them. But then you get into chapter 11, you're just like, oh snap, there's even more names. And chapter 12, there's even more names. But look, can, can, can I just make this application? See, one of the ways that we actually pursue living lives of obedience is in the context of the local church. And one of the things that you see here is that God's people have always been concerned to know who is in and who is out. Do you know what those lists are? Those lists are historic documentation of those people who are situating themselves under the covenant. They, literally, they're keeping track Their family heads, they're organizing them based on their roles, the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers. And they're saying, here are the people who are committing to live under the law of God. God's people have always been concerned to know, not abstractly, but definitively, here's who's in and here's who's out. Here's here's who's under the covenant and here's who's outside of the covenant. And brothers and sisters, that's really what church membership is. Church membership is us as a church saying, we want to know who's who's in, who's committing with us, alongside of us, to walk out our lives in obedience to Jesus. And church membership is one of the ways that we come alongside each other and help each other in that obedience. It's one of the ways that we hold one another accountable so that where there are brothers and sisters who say, uh, who are living their lives in a way that is flagrantly disobedient, the church comes along and brings uh, both corrective, di- uh, formative, and corrective discipline because we care about obeying the Lord. We care about being a people who are committed to obeying Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you're not a member in the church, I, I gave my little pitch for the Discovering. Uh, joy class that we're going to be having. If you're here and you're not a member of this church church or a church, can I just encourage you? Like God's people have always been concerned to know concretely, together, in a, a self-conscious, committed way, who is under the covenant and who is not under the covenant. Who is committed, who is in, and who is out. So if, if you're not, can I just encourage you and, and urge you to bind yourself to a local church in membership so that you can walk out those commands and have accountability in the body of Christ. Now, I could linger on that for a long time, but I'm not going to. And I'm really not going to come to chapter 11 uh, and 12. Again, we're going to you know, camp out here in chapter 10, there's a lot to be said about those lists. And I can, I would love to talk to you more about them. The, the, the importance of these lists that we find in the Bible, why, why are they here? I know if you're doing like a reading plan, you get something, you're like, all right, you know, Shemaiah and Habaniah and Binu and all these names, and it takes a while to read through. But there's real significance to those lists being in the scripture. If you want to talk about that more, let me know. I would love to. We're going to drill down a little bit more into that section in chapter 10. So that's the first thing. True confession leads to true obedience. One of the ways that we walk that out is in the life of the church. The second thing here that we learn, though, is that true obedience leads to true life. True obedience leads to true life. For, for many, uh, the idea of obedience is, is stifling, restricting, even painful. You know, our, our, our culture uh, would would argue that real freedom. right? think about that idea of freedom. Real freedom in, in life is the ability to do whatever you want, right? Throw the rules out to live by your own set of rules. We, we live in a world where there is so much pleasure and enjoyment to be had, and uh, and and for many, uh, God, some would say, he's just an idea that that keeps us from all of that and makes us into these joyless blindly compliant uniform drones but the bible's portrayal of obedience is like exactly the opposite like if you're honest with the text the bible's portrayal of obedience is not drudgery it's not confining it's not restricting in the scriptures and in reality obedience to god is freedom is this am i saying something new to you like have you heard this before like obedience to God's commands is freedom. It's joy. It's comfort. It's blessing. It's creativity. It's purpose. It's adventure. You know, one of the things that my wife really wants to see in her life is a whale, a real live whale like one of those like massive majestic humpback whales like breaching up out of the water can you like picture it and like the tail like slapping on the water you know it'd be so cool let me ask you a question if that whale that beautiful, majestic whale who is, is so free, swimming and powerful and jumping up out of the thing. and like You can't even imagine what that would be like. It would be so amazing. If, if that whale, that same whale says, you know what, I've had enough of the rules. I don't like the rules. I want to live my own way, and so I'm going to live on land. If he says, you know, I'm going to throw off the shackles of convention, and I'm going to live how I want to live on land. Is that whale going to be more or less free? Do you see? That's not real freedom. That's not real joy. That's not real pleasure. That's slavery. That's restriction. That's death. And, 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 and here's what it is. Like you were made by God. And so he is the one who knows what true human flourishing is. He's the one who defines it. He he made you in a certain way to flourish. And he knows what true freedom is and what true life is. And so he gives us his law. He gives us his commands to lead us into that life. And just like the whale, right? It's in the environment of God's gracious commands that finally we are free to be truly human in the way that God has made us. God's commands are not stifling or restrictive or oppressive. They are good. Let me give you another, I I want you to see this in the text. Let me give you another analogy though here before we come to it. If if I buy a car, cars come with rules. Do you know that? Cars come with laws, right? In order for a car to work, you got to put oil in the engine to lubricate it. You got to put uh, fuel, you gotta put gas in it to fuel it. You gotta make sure the tires are pumped up. If, if I say, you know what, I'm not gonna follow the rules. I don't wanna follow the rules. I don't wanna follow the law. I'm dumping maple syrup into the car. It's gonna be what? Is the car gonna be free to drive? Are you gonna be able to cruise down the highway with the wind blowing in your air? Blowing in your air? No. Right? See, God gives good commands. If God knows what it is that makes us run, He knows what it is that makes us move. He knows what it is to give us a life that is free and joyful in the knowledge of him. Let's see it here in the text. Look what's happening. Verses 30 to uh, 39. What's happening here? The Israelites are covenanting again to keep the Mosaic covenant. That's what's happening. They're, They're covenanting to keep the covenant. They're promising to keep all of the law as it was handed down to Moses and and they are covenanting to do all of it but there's really three things that stick out here there's three things that they identify three major emphases three major concerns that you know three things that really need to be corrected their most serious failures the first is that they renewed their commitment not to intermarry you track with me they're covenanting to keep the law three specific things okay they're doing all of it but there's three things that are being highlighted okay they're covenanting Uh, renewing their commitment not to intermarry, that is only to marry those people who identify with Yahweh and who are submitted to His law. Uh, They're renewing their commitment to observe the weekly Sabbath and the Sabbath year. We'll talk about that in a moment. And third, they are renewing their commitment to maintain the temple and observe the ritual sacrifices. Three things that get highlighted, and here's what I want you to see. These aren't arbitrary or oppressive commands. They are good commands God gives to his people so that they can know full, joyful, and blessed lives. God gives these laws so that they would live in the joy of his purity and his provision and his presence. So let me me show you these uh, one by one. I'm going to move through them quickly, but let me show you each of them. So Jason mentioned last week, if you were there, if you gathered with us with Pittman, Jason mentioned... Uh, about God's stipulation against intermarriage, and, and just again to be clear, to set the record straight, uh, this has nothing to do with ethnicity. This is there is there is no stipulation here against marrying someone from a, a, a different ethnicity because they are a different race. It has to do with being joined to foreign people that worshipped foreign gods. That's what's at issue: joining with people who are going to uh, twist and contort the truth of God because they're worshiping idols. And so the Jews had experienced, they had, they had done this, and the Jews, by the way, had experienced pain and destruction in their relationships because they had ignored God's command, right? By intermarrying with, with foreign peoples who worship different gods, their own devotion to God was diluted and twisted, They were compelled at points to embrace false gods. Their marriages were riddled with conflict and compromise. Their children were raised confused between two worlds. And the net effect was that the truth of God's word, which was meant to be passed down from generation to generation to generation, was all but lost. You see, God had called them to join themselves to husbands and wives who shared their commitment to the Lord, and to God's word so that their homes would be marked by unity and harmony and commitment and agreement and order so that their children would be the recipients of God's word as it had been handed down by their ancestors. And so there would be no confusion about the big questions of life. But they've intermarried and it's caused all kinds of interfamilial heartache and pain. And you see, you see the same command issued in the New Testament when Paul warns believers in 2 Corinthians 6. He says uh, to believers, do not yoke yourself to an unbeliever. He's saying, believers, do not marry unbelievers. Because there's no, there's no eth- uh, ethnic, racial requirements or, or uh, uh, restrictions. He, he's saying, don't, don't marry people that don't have Yahweh as their God, that don't have the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Why? Because inevitably it will create conflict and compromise and confusion. Do do you you see what I'm saying? God's command for them to marry other people that share their commitment and faith in the Lord is a good command so that they can enjoy the blessings of a harmonious and unified marriage. So if if you are a young person here this morning, or a not-so-young person, and and you are wanting to pursue marriage, can can I encourage you that, like, ground level, 101, as you're evaluating people that you would pursue as a potential spouse, make sure that there's someone who shares your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a command. That's That's a command that God gives. But can you hear it as a good command? It's not because God's trying to restrict you. It's not because God's trying to stifle you. It's because he wants you to know the blessing of a unified and harmonious and loving marriage where you share the most important things in common. God's not trying to be mean or make it even harder to find a spouse. No, it's, it's because God knows the joys and blessed, the blessings of marriage are easily lost when there is an essential agreement on these realities. Uh, realities. So that's the intermarriage. And listen, I'm just going to basically do this with the other two. Can you Do you, do you see the point I'm making? You guys are all looking at me. You, you, he's giving a command. Is the command a, a restricting, stifling command? Is the command like burdensome or drudgery to obey when you know that it's for the good of his people? No, they're good commands. They're life. They're freedom. T- to know real joy in marriage is to know union with another person that shares your you are understanding and and belief about the key things of Scripture and who God is. Okay, let me move on. Uh, The second matter of emphasis is their recommitment to observe the Sabbath. Okay, we're not going to intermarry. We're going to observe the Sabbath. And among the three, maybe this is the one that seems most arbitrary, right? God picks a day when we aren't supposed to work, but instead are supposed to physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually rest. But why? Why? It's because God knows we are dust. Right? God made us. He knows that we are finite. He knows that we are limited beings who need time to rest. You remember Jesus' words when he asked about the Sabbath? Uh, He's he's asked about the Sabbath and he says, God made the Sabbath for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath, the, the command to obey the Sabbath, is very much a gift of God's grace. You know, when you're, when you're a kid, it's like this. When you're a kid, when your parents come and tell you, hey, it's nap time, you're like, no, not nap time. But if, if as an adult, if, if, if there was someone that had this authority that came and said, I demand, I command you to take a nap, you'd be like, this is the best command I ever heard. I have no problem obeying this command. Amen, amen, glory be to God. I'm taking a nap. I'm obeying this command. And that's what the Sabbath is, right? God's commands are not burdensome. They're good commands because he knows we're limited, finite beings who need rest. You know, it's like someone coming to me saying, I command you, spend time with your wife. Like, oh man, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to absolutely, I, want, I, I have no problem obeying that command. It's my joy to obey that command. It's what I want to do. Now, uh, here's the second thing. He says, uh, putting your work down, that is, laying aside productivity, is an act of faith in the provision of God. So I want you to see first, right, that this is a good command, right, that we need rest. But the second thing is that it, it requires an act of faith, right, to lay your productivity down, to trust in the Lord's provision. But therein lies a blessing in itself. You see, so so often we are after like the material blessing that God gives. But do you know the ultimate blessing in the Sabbath is learning more deeply to trust and rely upon a God who provides for his people. When you take a day out of seven, you need to say, I'm not working. And then the Sabbath year. So the Sabbath year is one out of seven, every seven years, we're gonna allow our fields to lay fallow. We're not gonna, we're not gonna cultivate them. And we are going to trust the Lord to provide. And that takes a measure of faith. But the net add, the, the, the net effect of that is you grow deeper in the knowledge and the awareness and the confidence that God is a God who provides for his people. And so God intends our obedience to, this, to his command for our good. To know the blessing of rest and to know the blessing of trusting him more deeply to provide for our needs. And brothers and sisters, God commands us even now to prioritize rest, physically by taking time to lay aside our work and productivity, and spiritually by prioritizing gathering with God's people to be renewed in the gospel. Could it be that your impulse to work or your inability to lay down whatever it is you have to get done is a lack of faith in God's provision? Could it be that you are disobediently passing up the gift of gathering maybe even with God's people on a Sunday or on a Tuesday or Wednesday at Life Group throughout the week because you're not trusting the Lord to provide for your other material needs? So that's the second one. Look at the third one. Verses, uh, chapter 10, verses 32 to 39 We read of Israel's recommitment to make provision for the maintenance of the ritual sacrifices, and this is probably the one that's most involved, right? It's like we've got a we're giving a third of a shekel to uh, make sure that all the uh, entailments of the temple rites and sacrifices are provided for. There's a wood offering. Uh, we're, We're dedicating our sons and the first, you know, our firstborn sons and the first fruits of our harvest. This is the one that's most involved and, and perhaps um, requires the most tangible amount of sacrifice. So they, they you know they promise to give a portion of their income. Uh, you know, they cast the lots and all of this. Also that the temple can function as God intended it to. Now, again, they they are committing themselves to obey the law of Moses, which requires the provision of these things. But again, why? That's the question we keep coming to. Why? Why is God wanting them to obey these commands by setting aside portions of their resources to make provision for the temple and its sacrifices? Well, what is the point of the temple? The temple is the place where God dwells. If you were a part of our uh, series when we went through Leviticus and we talked about the tabernacle and the temple is sort of like the next evolution in the tabernacle... Right? It, was, it was the way in which God dwelled with his people. The temple is the place where God promises to be with his people so that they can know the blessing of his presence. And more specifically, think about what's reflected in all the temple rites and all the sacrifices. Right, Is there providing all these little things to make sure that the sacrifices... What, what is the point of those sacrifices? It's so that God's people can come in and see God making a way... For their sins to be forgiven. That God is making a way for them to have right relationship with him. That God has, is making a way for them to have right standing with him. To have <laughs> fellowship with him. These commands are not burdensome. God is saying, hey, make sure you're doing all these things so that you can come into the temple and enjoy the blessing of my presence and know for sure that I am a God who's gonna make sure that your sins are accounted for, that they are covered, that you are forgiven, that you have right relationship with me. What a burdensome set of commands that we would come in and hear God again say, you are forgiven. You're made right with me because of what I have done. Do you see, these aren't, these, God's commands are good. They're life, they're freedom, they're joy to us. God made us with the deepest of all needs to have fellowship with him at the very core of what it means to be a human is that we were made in the image of God for relationship with him. And without that, we just we just devolve, we dehumanize apart from friendship with God. We go chasing after every little thing to try and fill that need, but it always leaves us disappointed because it's God himself that we need. And here he is commanding them to know the blessing of relationship with him, to know the blessing of his presence as they come into the temple, to know the blessing of his acceptance mediated through the provision of these sacrifices. Now, again, I think there's some real application that we can make here. Uh, the, 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 the service this morning and the church as a whole, right, it requires resources, right? It doesn't just pop into existence. What we do in membership is we gather and commit to one another to make provision for the ministry of the church. Why? Is that, is that uh, just some like, burdensome command that, that we obey? No, Right? We make provision. We, we give of offerings. We give of our resources. We take portions of our salary and dedicate a percentage of it to the church. Why? So that we can gather in week by week and hear God say to us again and again and again, I've done everything so that you can be made right with me. I've done everything so that your sins can be forgiven. I've done everything so that you can have an eternal, everlasting, unshakable hope. So that you can have a righteousness in me. So that you can know the promise of heaven. So that you can know you have right. So that you can know you are accounted as one of my children. That's why. So that we can come in and be renewed again in the covenant. Now look, here, here's the point. 1 John 5.3 For this is the love of God. What do you think is going to come after that? If you are writing the Bible, what do you think is coming after that? Here's what, here's what the Apostle John says. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. When command, God's commands are just rules to follow and hoops to jump through, or your way of proving yourself, or trying to win for yourself your own righteousness, they're totally burdened. They're just weight. But when by grace you know the God behind the commandments, you hear what I'm saying? When by grace you know the God behind the commandments, they are life and freedom and joy and blessing. And now, uh, here's my qualifier. I'm going way too long. Here's my qualifier. None of what I, mean, what, what I just said means that obedience is easy. None of what I said negates the fact that obedience is hard at times. In fact, obedience can and will at times require sacrifice. We get a little picture of that here. If, if you go to the beginning of chapter 11, you'll see that they have to, they're repopulating Jerusalem. There have been some attempts to move people back into Jerusalem, but th- there just have not been enough people that have moved back into the holy city. And the holy city, Jerusalem, is where the temple resides and it needs people in it. But for decades now, like prior to Nehemiah and prior to Ezra, right, like for decades, people have been living outside the city because the whole thing was just broken down. The walls were jacked up, the temple was busted up, it was in disarray. And so no one wanted to move back into the city. It was actually more dangerous, right? If you're like a marauding army, Right, you, you know, there's a certain draw to like attacking a broken-down city, but if you're out in the countryside, like no army's gonna, you're in the countryside. It's like people. Are, the marauding armies are just gonna pass by. So there's an element of danger to moving into the city. You be, kind of become a target. You have to let go of land and real estate to move into the city. There's an element of sacrifice. And so they 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 cast lots, and one out of ten are gonna be chosen, and then perhaps there are some that also willingly volunteer to move into the city of Jerusalem that's obedience it's hard it's sacrifice but again it's 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 good it's good for them to do that for 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 the temple to, to move and, and and work for them to be able to come in and experience the joy of God's blessing it would you know i was trying to think of like a good illustration good analogy it would be like this it would be like if i said hey we're going to we're going to plant this church in camden And so all of us are going to sell our homes and we're all going to move into Camden. I'm guessing there's going to be a fair amount of you that are like, eh, not really looking forward to doing that. Now Camden, if you know, people that lived in Camden in the 40s, Camden was a spot. It was a place to be. You know, movie theater every 10 blocks, the arts, beautiful, beautiful city. But it has been, you know, over time it has degraded and, and, and there's been... Uh, you know, crime and all kinds of things. And it would require a great degree. That's that's kind of what's going on here. They're going to have to sacrifice to go into the city, into Jerusalem and say, we're going to be here. But it's good. It's hard, but it's good. God's commands, they, they are. Hard. it is hard to be obedient at times. But it's good. God's commands are good. So, just be obedient. And everything will be better. See, there's a problem, right? If I just say that, like, that can't be the, if that's the end of the sermon, it's like, there's no hope. Right, because we know there's, there's a problem. If it was as simple as that, if, the, if, the, if that was, if, that, if that's all the problem was, if our problem was just ignorance, right? Like, we just don't know. We just don't know God's laws. Just tell us God's law, and then we'll obey them. If that was a the problem, then Nehemiah would have a very different ending. But, but if you know the way that Nehemiah unfolds, we're going to see the rest of chapter 12 and the rest of chapter 13, what we find is this same group of people that is like, we will walk in God's ways. We will observe and do all that God commands. Nehemiah is going to, he's going to head out back to Susa and then he's going to come back and he comes back and he finds the people and they've forsaken the covenant all over again. They're not obeying. They're not walking in God's laws. Right if it, if, it was just a, if, if it was just a matter of ignorance, then the way Nehemiah would end would be like, we would finish here and it'd be like they lived happily ever after. But that's not how it ends. Why? It's because sin has contaminated every part of us. It's because it's, it's, it's not just a problem of ignorance. It's that our wills have been corrupted by sin, our desires, Our hearts, our emotions, our priorities. By nature, we are people who are skeptical and resistant to God's rule over us. By nature, in the very core of what and who we are. You know, at one point, Paul wants to put his finger on what we are. And you know what he calls us? He calls us sons of disobedience. Children of disobedience. In other words, instead of being children of God and having our origin with him, we are the products, the offspring, the progeny of disobedience, of rebellion. And it's not merely what we are, it's who we are. It's it's down to the very core. It goes down deep in the very center of our being so that Paul can write later on in Romans, like when the law comes in, sin increases. Right here, it's like the law comes in. And if this were not our problem, it would be like, okay, great. Everything's better. But no, when the law comes in, sin increases. That's who we are. That's what we are. We know it from God's word, but we know it too from our own experience, don't we? Don't you know that from your own experience? That even, even when you get little glimmers of seeing your sin and, and, you, and you commit, I'm going to do better, I'm gonna, and then somehow you find yourself back in the mud. You find yourself back in the dirt of your sin. You're like the dog that returns to its vomit. Right? Don't you know that by your own experience? Am I the only one? (laughs) Did you say yes? (laughs) You're like, you're agreeing with me. (laughs) Okay. I don't think I'm the only one. Like, this this is who we are. This is what we are. We know all the times that we have been confronted by our sin and have resolved to follow in God's way, but found ourselves right back in the sin we promised never to return to. And, And so, where can true obedience be found? Where can this kind of true obedience that I've been talking about, where can that obedience be found? Well, you know, brothers and sisters, it can only be found in Christ. It can only be found in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus was the only one who truly obeyed God perfectly. When when Jesus was baptized, you know, he comes up out of the water. And do you remember what the father says? I think I prayed this. Uh, The father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He gives his benediction. He gives blessing. He gives his good word of approval and acceptance and Jesus lives a life of perfect obedience, and so he knew the absolute joy and delight of his Father. He walked perfectly in his Father's commands, and so Jesus knew what it was to live a life full of joy and freedom and life. At every point of the law, he was blameless. Right? you remember the, At one point in this text, when when Israel is summarizing, when the God's people are summarizing their confession of sin and they're now resolved to do better, they say, we will not neglect the house of our God. That's what they had been doing. They had been neglecting the house of God and they say, we're not going to do that. We're not going to neglect the house of our God. Then Nehemiah comes back and there they are. They're negligent again. They're not not, uh, paying attention to the house of God. But do you know what the scriptures say about Jesus? Zeal for the house of God consumed him. He was consumed by a zeal for the house of the Lord. And and here's what's more. Here's what's more. Do, Do you know, think about this. Do you know whenever God comes to a man and makes a covenant, it's gone something like this. There's lots of covenants in the Bible. And whenever God comes and makes a covenant with a man, it goes something like this. It goes, if you obey me, I will bless you and I will multiply and I will prosper you. But if you disobey, you will be cursed and you will languish and wither. That's basically how those covenants unfold. When God comes to a man, he says, if you obey blessing, if you disobey curse, But do you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, for the first time ever, God comes to a man, the man Christ Jesus, and he says, if you obey me, I will curse you. If you obey me, if you do what I'm calling you to do, you will be condemned and you will languish and wither. You see, in that garden, God held out to Jesus everything that he would experience if he obediently fulfilled his role as the savior of sinners. And it wasn't blessing, and it wasn't joy, and it wasn't life, and it wasn't freedom. It was curse, and it was sorrow, and it was condemnation, and it was death on a cross. And there is God the Father in the garden saying, if you obey me, I will curse you. And do you know what Jesus Christ does? He obeys his father. He obeys his father. It is a perfect, spotless, blameless obedience. It's a perfect obedience. And he goes to the cross. And on the cross, all the covenant curses for Israel's disobedience comes upon him. All the covenant curses for our disobedience fall upon him. Galatians 3, 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You know, there's a, there's an interesting phrase in chapter 9, verse 38. It's the very beginning, the end of chapter 9, the very beginning of our passage. Chapter 9, verse 38, it says that after they made their confession, the people made a firm covenant in writing. Look in your Bible. Look, I, I'm, I'm not going to linger too long here, but look in your Bible. Chapter 9, verse 38, it says they made a firm covenant in writing. And I'm not sure, sh- I don't know why they translate it this way, but in the original language that that they made a firm covenant, it it. it it carries uh, the, the literal word in the Hebrew is that they cut a covenant. That's the language for covenant making. They cut a covenant. And it calls us back to Abraham. Do you remember Abraham when God makes a covenant with Abraham? What happens? Abraham gets a, a bunch of animals and he cuts them in half. That's, the, that's where the cutting of covenant comes from. He cuts them in half and he makes like an aisle. So imagine b- bloody animal carcasses cut in half, creating an aisle and then God puts Abraham to sleep. And then a smoking fire pot, which is a representation of God's presence, moves through that aisle alone. And do you know what God is saying there? He's taking upon himself the burden for fulfilling the covenant apart from Abraham. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to, head, I'm going to uh, hold up my end of the bargain. What the two parties, typically what would happen is the two parties that were making the covenant, they would go through arm in arm, and they were saying to one another, if I violate the words of this covenant, may it be done to me as it's been done to these animals. May I be cut in two, may I be ripped apart. And what God is saying is I'm holding myself accountable for my end of the covenant end Abraham's end of the covenant. And if Abraham is faithful, then may it be done to me as it's been done to these animals. May I be ripped apart. And do you know that's exactly what happens on the cross. On the cross, Jesus comes down and he's ripped apart by the wrath of God for our covenant faithlessness, for our covenant disobedience, for the fact that we have not lived our lives in obedience to the Lord. And on the cross, the Son of God, he puts on flesh, he's cut down, he's ripped apart. And and look, here's what I'm trying to get you to see. It's in that. It's It's in Christ crucified. And Christ then raised again from the dead, assuring us that that payment is enough to secure our forgiveness for our disobedience. It's when you see that, that you see the God behind the command. See, when you go to the cross, now you don't see arbitrary rules. What you see at the cross is a God who so loves you, who is so committed to your eternal good that he is willing to, to... Rip apart his own son, that he was not, he would not even spare his own son, but he would sacrifice his own son, and that Christ would willingly take on the cross and the burden of our disobedience. You see the God behind those commands. And what you see is a God who loves you. And when you see it, by God's grace, when his spirit opens your eyes to see the truth of who God is and what he is doing for you on the cross, what it births in you is a love for God and in love, a trust right you you see maybe i don't maybe i don't understand why he is commanding to do this why he's commanding me to do this thing but i know it can't be bad because i have seen the way my god loves me I've seen all that he was willing to do to make sure that I was eternally safe in him. And so you see the God behind the commands. And that's the thing that melts away the rebellion. That's the thing that melts away your resistance to obeying him because you see who he is. It's a, listen, our obedience as Christians is not duty. It's, it, it, it is not obey or else that's the blessing. Jesus says he makes a new and better covenant, right? The old covenant was do and be blessed, not do and be cursed. But now the new covenant is not do and live. The the new covenant is look at all that God has done. And as a response to his grace, as a response to his mercy, now we move out into the world in joyful obedience, Not because we're afraid that if we disobey, the hammer's going to come down. No, because, because we know him, because we love him, because we trust him. And as we walk in God's commands, we know the joy and freedom and blessing of the life that he has intended for us. So the gospel is what makes us willing and eager to submit to God, empowering real obedience from the heart. So when by faith you see Christ taking the penalty for all your disobedience, it melts away the rebellion and replaces it with love and trust that results in a heart that says, I want to obligate myself. That's the language in the text, right? I want to obligate myself to follow this king. I bind myself, not out of duty, but out of love to obey and follow him. Uh, William Cooper, famous hymn writer, he put it this way. You probably know this hymn. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. That's our relationship to the law. When you see Christ fulfilling the law in your place, providing you a perfect righteousness with his perfect obedience, a a righteousness you can never provide for yourself, and when you hear God's pardoning voice, It turns slaves into children, and now the law, our obedience to the law is not duty, but choice. So let me leave you with those words that I began with. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to do what? Trust and obey. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, uh, we do pray that you would enable us to walk in obedience, not, not as, 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 as a grudging obligation, not out of fear that if, if we don't, that the, the, the hammer of your justice is going to come down. We know that that has been handled at the cross. And so now we pray that you would help us to live our lives in response to your grace, that in response to your mercy and kindness, we would obey you out of a sense of joy and gratitude and love. So Lord, do that work in us by your Spirit. Help us to walk in your ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.